Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? Uh, very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. Hope it's going great for everybody else as well. Uh, in today's podcast, we are going to be doing a Q&A. Every now and then, I will do a call for questions, and we will answer them on the podcast like this. It's a great way to interact with everybody that listens. So to be on the lookout for that, uh, follow me on Twitter, at Focus Compound. Um, and the first question... Uh, it says, how does Jeff go from 80 to 100% of being comfortable with an entry into an actual investment? So basically, when you're 80% yeah. to a couple of different ideas, what is that remaining 20% like? How do you actually get to that comfort level of being able to, um, uh, you know, part of your due diligence, being able to, you know, get comfortable with buying the actual stock? Yeah, it depends on the situation. Um, I usually have a few questions about what I don't know and might need to know um, to have comfort in a situation. So like, uh, let's say Farmer Mac, right? It would be if I had like a great understanding of management, their philosophy about risk taking, all that sort of things. So, you know, if we were some big fund that could go and meet with them and they would talk to us and give us all, you know, a feel for that kind of philosophy and stuff, and I really liked it, then I probably just own the stock. Um, that's really all I would need to know in a situation like that. But absent that, then I might not be able to buy something like um, that, which is a GSE, but basically a finance, a financial company, um, or like an insurer or something. So often there it would be, you know, the sort of the risk-taking philosophy and stuff like that. Um, in cases with land and stuff, sometimes it's to see it and to understand that better. Um, and then a lot of times it's a lot of times it's something about the um whether i'm missing something about how quickly they can kind of lose business and lose market share and stuff um i mentioned that i'd read the bruce greenwald second edition thing and uh, one thing that he's talked about is how big are market share changes in an industry and um so how long would it take kind of to replicate another company's success, you know? So if market share is changing by half a percent a year, then it's, you know, you have a wide moat. And so he kind of thinks of measuring a moat in those terms. So that's the one in which I could really miscalculate on something, is that preferences in an industry might change faster than I think. And so that's often talking to customers or trying to get some understanding of why they don't switch. Got it. Um, next question comes from our friend Trey. As a concentrated investor, how do you justify investing in a company where you consider management a negative modifier to the investment case? Yeah. Is that hashtag Jeff mentioned in a recent podcast that you don't speak to management only in cases where there is some negative association? Uh, sure. So um, that's true. It, and it's hard. Uh, sometimes you look at stocks um, and you feel that you understand the situation, but there are some very big pros and some very big cons. And so occasionally you can find situations where um, you think the stock is cheap, you think the industry is good, you think the business is good, and you don't like the people running it. And then it's a question of like, how much do you not like the people running it? And how much harm can they do? And things like that. Um, it varies, but right now, for the most part, we are pretty heavily um, skewed towards situations in which I really like management. Yes, um, that's the more so than has been the 
true in the past. But sometimes you will invest in a business that um, was one of the categories that Pabrai gave where he said, you know, is this a business that an idiot could run? Mm -hmm. Or is this a business that um, is a good business if it's not run by an idiot? And there's a difference between the two. Um, So, I mean, it's, it's the economics of it. If you feel that they're not going to lose customers and that they're going to grow, uh, they're, let's say you think that it's unlikely customers switch in this industry and the market's going to grow double digits and you don't have to put more capital into it, you know, then you might buy it. So is it true that, you know, if it was like Moody's and S&P and things like that, might you buy them even if you didn't like management? Yeah, it's possible. I think using big company examples, and I think that's true for us. Um, I would buy into a situation with management if I felt that management I didn't like, if I felt that um, the business would do okay, no matter who was running it. Mm. I was telling Jeff, we have a ton of SPAC questions as well. Somebody asks, biggest recent mistake and the takeaways from that, biggest recent success and the takeaways from that, thoughts on finding value in pre-deal SPACs, love the podcast. Uh, Well, pre-deal SPACs uh, historically are pretty good source of value. Actually, value investors buy into them. Uh, most research I've seen suggests that the way to make money in a spec is, well, sponsoring it. But if you're not the sponsor, um, is to uh, buy in when there's no idea what they're going to buy, basically, and then sell after the news of what they're going to buy. Um, that tends to work. Uh, returns on average, like, I shouldn't say on average, the frequency of poor returns so that in any group of specs that you have, most will do badly is way above 50% once a deal has been announced. So most will turn out badly. Um, so I think the, yeah, pre-deal would make sense if you're getting in cheap. Um, and then what were the other two? Um, uh, biggest recent mistake and the takeaway from that. <sighs> biggest recent mistake. Um, I don't know. We Biggest might be, recent success. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, we, we might be, I'm thinking, we might be making a mistake uh, right now. I'm thinking about some stuff and thinking if I might make a mistake. Uh, there's two I'm thinking of where I might make a mistake, might be making a mistake, and it would be passing on something. The biggest mistake's always going to be passing, um, pretty, pretty much, just because the the payoffs of finding, of the kinds of things that we're looking for and stuff does skew it that way. So honestly, it's the opportunity cost. I know people don't like to hear that and don't believe that and stuff, but it's just, you know, I have passed on stocks or sold stocks that one I've sold stock that went up a hundred times over or more than a hundred times, um, over, you know, a lot of years. Kind of glad that happened, but I'm not sure if we'd be doing this if it, (laughs) but you know, but using more frequent thing, not just a one-time thing. There have been several instances in which I sold something that went up 10 X within 10 years. Um, and that's, that's not just passing on buying it. That's selling it, you know? Um, so it, it's you need to make a lot of mistakes of um, commission to make up for passing on things that go up ten times mm-hmm. within ten years. So it's always that, um, but I don't know right. So I can't tell right now about that opportunity cost. Yeah, I said I think that we could have got. It wouldn't be a very big dollar amount mistake, but we could have bought more volume of things in March, uh, in the last two weeks of March or the last week of March, really, um, when things were at their worst. Um, we had the opportunity to buy more stocks we already had, basically, to buy meaningful uh, volume in them. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that would have drastically changed things for the fund and stuff, just because there was such a short period of time in which a ton of volume was available. But it wasn't what we were buying. It was just not taking all the volume we could. Somebody asks if we will move our cash reserves to Bitcoin. I don't know if you heard, but Tesla's ex- doing exactly that. 
like 1.5 billion. They announced that today. Uh-huh. The Bitcoin. Yeah. No, we won't. Um, yeah. Um, no. <laughs> um, somebody asks, uh, would love to hear what some of Jeff's favorite businesses are outside of the mandates of your fund and regardless of valuation. Oh, um, well, it's interesting. I was looking at a business, uh, you know, that was, um, I was just reading the financials and stuff about it and reading the description. And I thought, oh, this is like, I like what the financials are. They're, you know, everything here looks good over the 10 or 15 year period that I was looking at. And I read the description of it. And I thought, oh, this is really good. And what I know about the industry and stuff, I really like this. I looked at the price. You know what I was trading at? What? 20 times sales. Oh, nice. So, yeah, probably not an overlooked stock. Um, what was the company? It, it was software as a service. Yeah. It was a software as a service. What thing. was the company? I'm not going to say what the company was, <laughs> but. Um, uh, so I like, um, I mean, we've talked about some of the businesses that I liked a lot. I mean, we, we've booking. mentioned, yeah. Okay. So it was a huge Exotica. company I did like booking. Um, I think, you know, um, we've mentioned Copart and things like that. And, um, which I liked, I years ago wrote some stuff up from Guru Focus and the way that I did it, it was a newsletter is basically I didn't look at price. So it was a screen where I had to pick things off of a screen that the computer was generating. And I was so worried about picking things that were wildly overvalued because of the way the screen worked um, that the risk there is not, usually the risk, is not paying too much for the business that turns out to be sustainable and works out. It's that you accidentally, a nifty 50, that you accidentally put a Polaroid in the nifty 50 Mm -hmm. as opposed to a Coke or a Gillette. So what I did, and I could go over exactly what those companies were that I picked. So the ones that I liked that I picked um, for it included Ball, Waters, Exponent, which was originally called, I think, Failure Associates or something like that. I think their investment bank probably told them you want to change your your ticker or whatever on that. Um, And uh, Copart. Right. And um, so the examples like that. So you could just see, look at those companies. I liked them. I haven't always liked uh, the prices that they've been at. And sometimes I haven't necessarily loved like their, for some of them, I really like their capital allocation stuff, but um, I haven't always loved their capital allocation stuff. But you can see that I like those industries and those businesses a lot. Um, we've certainly mentioned on the podcast things like US Lime and stuff like that, which gets, I was looking at that this weekend. Yeah. Um, it's an industry that I like over time that way. We own a car dealer. I think as an industry, I like that business more than some people do. Um, maybe that's a better way of putting it. I don't know if those are my favorite businesses, but for whatever reason, I kind of like the line business more than a lot of people do. And I like the car dealer business better than a lot of people do. Um, and everyone knows the bank banking I like. Yeah, better. so it's yeah. like financials, consumer brands, um, casinos, stuff in gambling. Yeah, there's just some things where the, the price Theme is parks. never right. We've talked about... Um, uh, insurance um we were talking about a brand that was sold uh, well i mean we've talked about um alcohol brands mm-hmm. they're not available prices that really work for us but um i like that a lot and everyone knows that i like things in um flavors and fragrances and um spices and seasonings and sauces and things like that a lot they often go for crazy prices we talked about copenberg recently yeah. Yes. So, which uh, is an interesting thing because if you go to their website, 
maybe it's changed, but to go to their English investor relations, mm-hmm. it just reroutes it to the homepage. I literally was on Google Translate yeah. to learn or to read and try to decipher what they're communicating. Yeah, so, is so a Swedish company that has a very meaningful part of their business in the UK. Mm-hmm. That one's difficult for us to analyze because, you know, we don't know anything about the UK Um market like drinking habits and stuff like that right so we don't have a lot of access to either sweden or the uk to be doing on the ground research and stuff um so that is is a problem that i do think that company looks interesting though if people could figure some stuff out yeah and we've even mentioned things like um uh long long time ago we talked about celsius and i was like you know um we're not gonna buy it but it's not it's not a um, unreasonable it's not an unreasonable price uh, you know, for the future, possibly. Um, I don't think that, well, I don't know that I would have ever bought it regardless, not regardless of price, but um, I don't think that the way the company communicated with the public and who the management was and all those things would have made me real secure in how I felt about that. But if you just mean, could you have bought the brand and stuff? Yeah, I thought the brand looked interesting that way. But, th- you know, there are things like that. We don't say the name of it here, but I've talked with you about something where I said, yeah. I put a lot of money into it if we could buy it and they didn't come along with the organization with the people running it and stuff. Mm-hmm. But that, so there are sometimes brands and, and things, the product economics that I really yeah. like, mm-hmm. but it comes as part of a bigger company that you can't just buy that one piece, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. We were talking about that and I said, I think I'd be way more interested in if we could acquire the whole company. Acquire the whole thing. Yeah. 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 But that does at least tell you the product economics are really good. Mm-hmm. You know, that they're great. And lots of companies have hidden in them some sort of thing that has amazing product economics. Um, but then it's part of a big organization where that kind of gets disguised a bit that way. Yeah. Um, let's see. How has your investment process changed since starting the fund? Since starting the fund, I don't know. Um, I mean, I'd say, uh, well, I mean, a fund does give you a little bit more, um, continuity of capital in some ways it's not like you're managing permanent um capital you know it's not like being in an insurance company or um, your own money but it does change things a little bit that way so you can sort of think more about reinvestment risk you can think am i buying something that um part of the appeal is that i can keep the money in it so, it, you know, the way I think about the fund, which is different from uh, some people and stuff, is that uh, I don't – I wouldn't say that there's like an asset uh, level at which I'd say, oh, we can't do it or we can do it. But there is sort of a uh, cash level at which it's a problem. And so if you can buy a few million dollars of something and keep it for the long term, then in a sense you've allocated and you don't have to worry about that. Whereas the stuff that's the more shorter term things where you're going to buy and then flip and then buy again does create more need for new ideas that way. And so I think how much use you can get out of an idea is more important. Um, And that is a difference with that, with having a fund and ways of thinking about that. Um, And so I think it gets you closer to like the way that Buffett thinks about things and stuff like that, which is difficult for professional investors to focus on. Uh, professional investors often don't give enough thought to the reinvestment risk problem of it, which is, yes, maybe I can make money on this right now or whatever, but what do I do once I've made that money? Because the biggest danger is usually when you have cash, when you have, you know, you, at some point you get more cash, you have more cash than ideas. And so you can have this target price in mind for a stock. Oh, I'll buy it at 10. It goes to 20. I sell it. 
which is great. But if that was your last good idea, you've now just turned that idea into cash and don't have something else to put it into. Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot of value in finding things that you can um, stay in for a while, which means that the thing has to be compounding value on its own uh, for a while. Yeah. One of our frameworks is, can we realistically see us hold it for 10 plus years? Mm -hmm. Which means we'll pass and probably miss, quite frankly, a lot of different things too. But that's just kind of where we operate. Yeah, you have to weigh those things. Now, if it was the 1950s and stuff and the environment that Buffett was investing in, sometimes you have so many good short-term ideas that you feel more confident that you can buy something by net net, net net or something. It goes up, you sell it, I'll find another one. But there are other environments like today where you often feel it's hard to find other ideas that are really good. And then you do have to worry a little bit more about um, longer-term things. Yeah. They talked about in the snowball that Buffett always had more ideas in that time period. Yes. Capital. And I've had, in all the time I've been investing, I would say there were four years where it was overflowing with things that I would have been happy to buy. Um, the market just had so many things that I wouldn't have been opposed to buying all sorts of cheap things because there was just an abundance of it. You just were finding it all the time. But like I said, it was about two years, two different times in the time I've been investing. So about for a little more than every 10 years, there have been two years where it's just you can just find things all the time. Um, and that's when there really is some fear in the market or something like that. And it's also not an accident if you look, that's when there was huge numbers of net nets. And it's also when the returns in net nets are really big. Like, you know, you have net nets going up 100% in a year or something. How do you approach due diligence for SPACs? Have you looked at any SPACs? Well, we looked at Playboy. Yeah. We did a video on that. We looked at Playboy, yeah. Um, the thing with the... I would not invest in SPACs. Uh because I want to invest in IPOs. I don't want to get involved in something in which it's based largely on projections and is kind of the moment at which there's the most selling pressure, creating the most interest, you know, for people, for buyers. So like the most marketing of the stock itself. Um, I have like looked at things that had been SPACs before and I said that it would be okay to buy into pre-deal things. And you know, if the market, if, for whatever reason, the market really suffers uh, suddenly in a period in which there had been planned a lot of SPACs. Um, there will be a big opportunity in buying things that didn't close on a deal yet, mm -hmm. uh, haven't announced a deal, things like that, but exist. And there were in the past, and those are really good opportunities for value investors because things will actually fall to the point where the value of what they're going to, I mean, they basically become net nets, you know? I was going to say, a lot of companies we've looked at they um, may have been a SPAC, but like, you know, 10 years ago, now mm -hmm. everybody's talking about it today. Yeah, I'm not I mean, saying- SPAC's been around for a long time, obviously, but sometimes, you know, I come yeah. across a company, I'm like, oh, this was- a you know, the SPAC stuff is good for us in the long run because as of like, I don't know, a year ago or so, I would say there was probably more uh, private equity-owned businesses than uh, public companies mm -hmm. for listed things. Now we do a lot of over-the-counter and stuff, but remember a lot of over-the-counter is very poor quality that we don't get involved with. So when I started investing, there were way more public companies to choose from in the US. That's gone down a lot. SPACs do create a situation where if this goes on for a while, we will at least have a lot more public companies to choose from. You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. True. Next question, how do you approach valuation from an investment in one of Buffett's inevitables? Something like Airbnb is clearly a wonderful business that most would expect to be around for some time. How do you value something like that? Um, you're, I mean, you're, the way that makes the most sense is to approach it much the way that venture capital stuff does and that these companies themselves do in presenting things. 
which is dangerous. I mean, I don't like it, um, but it is the way to do it is you start with how big is this market and how big is the potential for this market. Now you have to be realistic about that. Um, and then how much value could you extract from that? Because you want to make sure that you're not looking at a situation that you think is going to keep growing um, when they've already saturated a lot of the market and stuff like that. So you do ask, okay, so Airbnb lodging is a huge industry and a lot is being spent on all sorts of things to um, market and stuff like that anyway. So there's actually a lot of value that could be extracted there because there's management of things, there's marketing of things, there's a lot of stuff that could be replaced instead with you know Airbnb. You think of it as doing both of those things. Um, so how big is the addressable market? How many players could there be in it? Uh, and then like how much value can you extract from it? as the question. So when you do inevitables like a Coke or something, well, does it end up as being Coke and Pepsi in a country? Uh, how much value can you get out of it versus other players in it? And um, how big is that market? You know, um, you they picked one there that's potentially huge, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's a way of defining it is kind of complicated because will it ever be that big? I don't know, but like, that's not the problem. You know, companies today like Facebook and Google and stuff, that's more of a problem. They're bumping up much more closely against the maximum size that you can reasonably have in advertising. Um, they're much more mature than like Airbnb. So it's easier to define their addressable market. Do you find cybersecurity interesting? And if so, what companies do you find interesting? I don't know enough about it. With the move to digital, does Jeff see the national papers like the Washington Post, New York Times, business model changing from traditional paper businesses to something more like Spotify or Netflix with the content being news? Will newspapers become essentially winner-take-all? I mean, you've really seen that shift. You know what company I was looking at recently? Lee Enterprises. Yeah. They have something going on with uh, the Buffalo Evening News. Okay. In, Bu in Berkshire. They're yes. They're a, me a media company. Yeah. Newspapers uh, and stuff. So it's interesting. Um, I just read, uh, was it The Man Who Owns the News? One of those things, uh, Rupert Murdoch uh, biography. And, and I read something recently that was about newspapers. Um, I think the reverse. Uh, actually, I think that it's not winner takes all. So it, it becomes winner takes all in a specific city. And that's what happened with like the Buffalo Evening News. But this transforms uh, national, in theory, national newspapers basically become like magazines. So what you would expect with national newspapers is that it causes dramatic um, uh, importance of editorial uh, decisions about what the paper is, positioning. So it now makes sense to be a conservative newspaper, a liberal newspaper, a whatever other things it might be that you pick as um, lifestyle things and stuff like that um, to address the whole national market because you can do that now, whereas that never made sense before. Mm -hmm. And that's what we've seen with some of them. Like, I mean, the New York Times has had success as a national brand, but it had been in decline really in terms of how many papers it was selling versus its biggest competitors um, for a long time in actual New York City. So it wasn't the most widely read paper in New York City by far, but it had the brand that traveled the best, and that's what mattered the most. So I would say it becomes more like a magazine, and it becomes what's your editorial slant, and how do you focus in on those people that, like, you make it must-read for some group of people, you know? Mm -hmm. um, which makes it more like podcasting and stuff, you know? More targeted. Yeah. I've compared podcasts before to magazines, and I would say that, um, that national newspapers will work more like magazines. Um, so they become targeted to specific groups of people, and they also start to probably be more like um, 
what they cover is more different from each other. So it used to be that, every, you know, the stories all lined up in terms of what each one did. Um, I guess maybe the simplest way to think about it is it becomes more like cable news because that's already kind of done what I was talking about. So they there it becomes like an oligopoly. There is room for a few different ones of you by segmenting your market. Whereas because of economies of scale stuff and really advertising stuff in um, specific cities, that didn't make sense. So you want it to be as um, sort of um, conventional as possible. And most papers did that where they're, in fact, it got silly because their editorial page would be very strongly... Um, very strong opinions about things, but the rest of the paper would be very mainstream because that's what always made sense as being the leading daily paper in a newspaper in a city. So now I think it'll change and be more like an oligopoly that way. Yeah, I could definitely see that. We have an accounting question. It okay. says in fiscal year 2020, Salesforce did 17 billion in revenue and its balance sheet shows 10.6 billion in deferred revenue. Since rev is mostly subscriptions, does this mean Salesforce gets to start next year with 60% of its rev locked in? Uh, well, I mean, next year, as of this moment, it depends. So if we can, you know, that we do that. So we say, okay, next year is, um, yeah, it depends on the agreements, but effectively, yes. Um, if it's all revenue, that is subscriptions that expire over one year, then yeah, that's true. However, if that's true, you know, they already took the cash. So their reported earnings, you know, are locked in, mm -hmm. but there's no cash associated with that. So if tomorrow everyone canceled, they would, in theory, still um, report the earnings, but they would be losing money on a cash basis for a year. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what happens if if um, you don't get the cash again next time. So, yeah, and it works that way with, with insurance stuff and things like that. If you have to have insurance to the end of a six-month term, but you pay for it all up front, then at the end of the six-month term, if you don't re-up again then you don't get the cash again. So yeah, and that would mean that obviously you have float in that amount and that would flow out if there was cancellation and stuff. Um, you know, not cancellation, but not people people not renewing. But yes, a thing that analysts love about it, though it's not relevant for us and stuff, is that if you have float generating businesses, one huge appeal to them, subscription business for analysts, is that basically you know what earnings will be for the next year yeah but the earnings for the next year don't matter bookings matter mm -hmm. i mean it's the same as like an engineering thing we know what they'll earn or like you know we, do, we cover naco uh on this podcast and that is something that's like they can tell you what earnings will be this year because it's already locked in basically in terms of what they're going to do but we don't care about that really what you're caring about is who's canceling now and stuff for it to hurt your earnings the year after that you know you kind of are looking ahead one year that was the same thing with any subscription business that way. So you can see that people signing up or whatever, that gives you an idea of what will happen in the future. And a good example of that is with insurance things. If you notice, they talk about earned premiums all the time. I always talk about written premiums. I don't know if we make a distinction between the two. But by looking at what the company is writing and stuff, you can see what they're going to do in the year ahead. Um, so it's just cash-based stuff happening first before accounting. But yes, analysts really like that you know exactly what their returns will be for the next, uh, what their reported results will be for a year. It's almost like you've been given their uh, quarterly results in terms of EPS a year ahead of time. Mm -hmm. We could close today with this question. How can new investors wrap their heads around the game? Any books you'd recommend for first-timers? Um, well, I think we said you can be a stock market genius, mm -hmm. right? Um I like, I think that people should, uh, new, new people should read, um, there's always something to do. 
That's when I like for learning about value investing more so, even though I like the intelligent investor, especially security analysis, it's hard to recommend those for people as a first time read. Um, and I also think that the investing chapters of the snowball are good things to mm-hmm. read. Yeah. Um, the hardest thing for people who are new are that you haven't experienced um, like the investment climate in different past years. And so you may confuse what's temporary with what is like a basic principle mm-hmm. of investing and of economies and things like that. You you know, you confuse like fashion and fundamentals, basically. Some stuff that's happening now or in any period is really just a, a temporary sort of thing. And some of it is very important, lasting sorts of things. And you only really need to know to learn about the second part of it. And so maybe reading things, I think biography, things like that. History. Like, yeah, like the snowball and stuff like that. Because it covers a long enough period of time that's very different will help you with that, with understanding fundamental kind of basic first principles, which is what really matters. I mean, the most important thing for a new investor uh, over your career, for someone who doesn't know anything now, is just not to get caught up in any craziness of any kind. Uh, whether that's craziness of dumping things that are perfectly good stocks or craziness of buying things that have no real substance to them. You don't even really have to, you know, the be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. Even if you forget the second part, you can still, as an individual investor, do really well if you just at least remember the first part. As long as you're fearful when others are greedy, you know, as long as that you can remember that part and then otherwise behave normally, you don't really have to buy at the absolute worst moment of blood in the streets and stuff to get a good return but you absolutely must avoid any investing in things that are uh, without substance and stuff you have to avoid the dot-com boom you have to not um get into uh real estate at the very top in you know in 2006 or 7 um you have to not buy into whatever bubble things there are now in specific areas you you know things that have no earnings and are likely never to have them and stuff if you can just avoid those then you'll do okay it's this poem that we were just talking about yeah if by rudyard kipling yep if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you read the rest of the poem it's really great but it's really about the way my interpretation is is you know not getting too high on the highs not getting too down on the lows and staying in the flow yeah think about that poem all the time yeah, so I think it's really good to read investing things that are about other periods because you don't need to read a book about today. You're living today and you kind of assume it's normal. Yeah. And so if you're reading something that's actually set in the 70s or something, that's fine because you're not going to just think in terms of an all 70s mindset. There's no danger of that. You're always going to be relating it to today. So you need to get some diversity of opinion and time-wise, that's the best way to do it. And I, I think the most approachable one, honestly, is starting the snowball in whatever chapter it is. It might be the chapter strike one. That's a pretty good one to start Mm. with. If you start with that chapter and go forward, whether audiobook or reading it, the way that the book's written and Buffett as someone that you probably know who he is and stuff, it's going to make it very approachable to have a long decades and decades of investment history and to kind of learn principles that way. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the Bullet the Bus. Be on the lookout for future Q&As at Focus Compound on Twitter. Make sure you hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening or watching us. We appreciate all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast.